I think we all know that faithful Christians live in the world and interpret the world very differently from non-Christians. I think that's very obvious in our day. We, as Christians, have a very different view of the meaning of life, a different definition of the good life, a different diagnosis of our fundamental problem. We point to a very different solution to our problem. The Christian sees his life and indeed all of history as unfolding according to a divine plan. We are truly living in God's story. That's the Christian view. Uh, We see the problem as sin. We see the solution as Jesus dying for sins on the cross. That's the Christian view of the problem and its solution. The Christian sees God's word as the standard that that defines right and wrong. Reality is not fluid. It's not determined by our feelings. God has given the world a particular shape. He has designed the world to work in a certain way. And wisdom comes in recognizing those realities and that design. The world is what God says it is, not what people might want it to be. There's a difference in the way Christians and non-Christians view reality. Christians and non-Christians see the world differently. We live in the world differently. One of the biggest areas where this difference manifests itself today is in our view of children. The world has become very hostile to children, and this can be seen in all kinds of ways. Children require an others-centered way of life that is no longer popular. Children require sacrificing the present for the future, also unpopular in our day. In our nation and in virtually every developed nation in the world, the birth rate has plummeted. In many nations, in fact, the death rate exceeds the birth rate, which over the long haul is catastrophic for any nation. Of course, we all know that China had a one-child policy for a long time, and eventually Chinese leadership realized this was going to be a disaster, and so they have tried to reverse it, but it might be too late. The damage may have already been done. Nations that do not produce enough children are basically committing slow-motion suicide. But still, this view that the world needs to be depopulated, that children are bad, that children are bad for the planet. It can be found all over the place in our culture. This view that children are a problem is common. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has questioned, is it okay to still have children given climate change? And she suggests very strongly you have a moral obligation to not reproduce. The progressive columnist and speaker, Ezra Klein, recently said the the number one question he gets asked as he travels around is this, should I have kids knowing the climate crisis they will face? And he said the second most commonly asked question he gets is, should I have children knowing they will contribute to the climate crisis? Now, this ideology of environmental doom has its own problems. I won't go into that this morning. But people have been predicting uh, an imminent climate crisis since even before I was born. Uh, So the the, the track record for those predictions is actually pretty bad at this point. And there are good reasons to doubt that the uh, predictions of a crisis this time around will come to pass uh, either. So there's a lot of questions we could raise about that. But what is really noteworthy here is the view of children tied up in all of this. What's the view that Ezra Klein is, is expressing? 
children will either suffer or they will inflict suffering or both. And so therefore, we're just better off not bringing them into the world. But that's really all that goes into deciding whether or not to have kids. Nothing else seems to be factoring into the calculation. In the world's eyes, it's all negative. These people, I would say, are Scrooges. You remember Scrooge from uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol? Scrooge was concerned about the surplus population, as he called it. The world today is full of Scrooges who see only the costs involved in having children. They, too, are concerned about the surplus population. The idea that children can bring joy and hope and happiness into the world is entirely absent. The idea that children could actually contribute something positive is not even considered. No, in the world's eyes, children are viewed just as passive polluters. That's how children are looked at in the worldview of our culture. Again, there's no consideration that children can also make positive contributions, that they can be producers and innovators. And in fact, somebody's kid could even come up with a solution. Somebody's kid could grow up to produce a solution to this climate problem that Ocasio-Cortez and Klein are so worried about. Or maybe somebody's kid could grow up to prove there's really no climate crisis at all. But that kind of thing is not even considered. The anti-child mentality really does run deep in our culture. Obviously, abortion is part of this issue, as we have been aborting close to a million babies a year, killing babies in the womb year after year after year. But it goes far beyond that. Uh, there's actually a movement. You may have, have seen this referred to. There is a movement called Stop Having Kids. And they have started putting up billboards in American cities, especially out west, to spread their anti-child message to make people feel guilty about reproducing. Uh, politicians and other influencers will talk openly about the need to massively depopulate the earth. Forced sterilization is sometimes even mentioned. You would think that would be unmentionable after uh, things that have happened in the, in the past, not so distant past, but it does get mentioned. There is a group on Facebook called I Regret Having Children. A group on Facebook called I Regret Having Children, it has over 40,000 members. 40,000 plus members. Think how you would feel if you grew up to find out that your mom had joined a group called I Regret Having Children. It is common for articles and news stories to come out regularly that talk about how expensive children are or that celebrate the child-free life. Most everything you will hear about children in pop culture and in the mainstream media is negative. It's all about the cost. It's all about the struggle that children bring. Don't have kids. It's going to ruin your life. That's the message. Now, this is a sensitive issue. Not everyone will have kids. Many who desire to have children are not able to have children. We know that. Some are called by God to a life of singleness or celibacy, as we sometimes call it. Uh, again, some married people who would very much like to have children are not able to have children or are not able to have as many children as they would like. Uh, this is certainly a complicated issue, and we should be leery of a false guilt that can sometimes come with it. We want to avoid that false guilt. But what we need to see is this. The Bible gives us a very different view of children than what you will find in the world. The Bible gives us a very different way of looking at children than our culture. From beginning to end, Scripture presents children in a positive light. 
Children are gifts of God. Children are a blessing. Children are a sign of hope and a source of joy. Children are an investment in the future. Children are a legacy. Children are a resource. Now, obviously, anybody coming into our congregation would see very clearly, very quickly, that we believe this message. We do believe children are a blessing. Some visitors coming to our church might even think this is some kind of fertility cult uh, with all the little ones we've got running around. Uh, we are not a fertility cult, obviously. But I will tell you this. I think the world has fallen into an infertility cult. The world virtually worships infertility because that is supposed to bring freedom. And so abortion, killing off the next generation, homosexuality, which is obviously sterile, these are manifestations of ways in which our culture rejects God's gift of life. And in rejecting God's gift of life, our culture shows it really loves death. Our culture is suicidal. Because we have so many children in this church, it is good for us to review from time to time what God says to our children, what he says to Christian parents, what he says uh, to Christian parents uh, about their children and about their responsibilities to their children. It's good for us to review from time to time what God says in his word to the whole church about the children in our midst. Matthew 19 is a crucial chapter in understanding these things. We didn't read the whole chapter, but it's interesting how it all fits together. The chapter begins with the Pharisees bringing a question to Jesus to test him. It's a question about divorce. And to answer their question, Jesus takes them back to the creation account, back to the beginning of Genesis, to God's original design for man and woman and the covenant of marriage. And Jesus shows definitively God's design is that marriage is to be one man, one woman, one life for all of life. That was God's original design. That's the norm for marriage. The disciples then comment that if you can't opt out of marriage any time, that is if you get married and then you're stuck perhaps in an unhappy marriage, maybe it's better not to marry at all. And so Jesus goes from there to launching into a discussion about different types of eunuchs. Uh, that's maybe an odd word for us to use, but you can think of different kinds of people who live a single life, an unmarried life. There are literal eunuchs and metaphorical eunuchs. And Jesus says there are some who are called to give up family. There are some who are called to live a single life, the life of a eunuch, for the sake of the kingdom. That is a possibility. Some are gifted and called in that particular direction. Immediately then after discussing marriage and divorce and discussing eunuchs and singleness, some children are brought to Jesus so he could lay hands on them and bless them. So you've got a discussion of marriage, a discussion of singleness, and then a discussion of children. And you can kind of see how all of these topics fit together. Paul actually deals with all of those same topics in roughly the same order at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now when these children are brought to Jesus, the disciples object. The disciples don't like this. Perhaps they think Jesus is too important to be spending his time with children. Perhaps they thought it was unmanly for Jesus to minister to children. Oh, caring for children, that's, that's woman's work. So don't bring your children to Jesus. Perhaps they didn't want to be around children themselves because everyone knows that children are noisy and messy and inconvenient. Whatever the case, the disciples were anti-child Maybe not in the same extreme ways that people in our culture are today, but they saw children as a negative rather than a positive. They saw these children being brought to Jesus as a hindrance, as a distraction, as an inconvenience. 
and they wanted to avoid these children. And so they try to send these children away. Now again, it's important to see how at odds this attitude towards children is with the rest of Scripture. Just as the disciples were not aligned with Scripture in their view of marriage, so they are not aligned with Scripture in their view of children here. And just as Jesus, on the topic of marriage, took them back to the beginning, to the creation account, so we've got to do that with children as well. Go back to the beginning and what do you find? When man and woman are created on day six of the creation week in Genesis 1, God speaks over the whole human race a blessing, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Note those words, note some of those verbs there. Be fruitful, multiply, fill. Those are God's first words to humanity in Scripture. It is a commission, a mandate that goes to the core of who we are and what we are to do. It is a commission that has never been rescinded. It is a communion that flows out of love, the love of God as he creates the man and the woman, and then the love that the man and the woman have for one another, the the children that their love produces. That's what you see here, this creation mandate to multiply, to fill, to be fruitful. Now again, obviously in a fallen world, things get a little more complicated. Again, not everyone's called to have children. And in light of the Great Commission, we can say there are non-biological ways to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill. We can become spiritual mothers and fathers through evangelism and discipleship. That's an important role for all of us to play too. But there's no getting around the fact that reproduction or multiplication, that being fruitful, is part of what we are called to do as the human race. And human civilization can only go forward if men and women continue to marry and have children. And when a society as a whole stops being fruitful, and stops multiplying, bad things happen. And I would say this is especially true in top-heavy societies, economically top-heavy societies, uh, because welfare states are basically Ponzi schemes that require each new generation to be larger than the previous. And when that is no longer the case, disaster eventually strikes. We have no historical examples of a society experiencing long-term prosperity when that society declines in population. It just can't happen. When a culture, when a civilization stops being fruitful in terms of having children, it stops being fruitful in other ways as well, and that civilization starts to die. What's interesting, and and probably obvious uh, in America these days, is that secular people have largely stopped having children, while faithful Christians are typically having a lot of children. If you want to look at the birth rate in our, in our, in our nation, the single biggest factor that determines the number of children that someone will have is their religious commitment. The more committed they are religiously, the more likely they are to have a lot of children. The more secular they are, the less likely they are to have any children. And this is because the secular worldview does not encourage fruitfulness. In fact, just the opposite. The secular worldview cannot support fruitfulness. The Christian worldview does. Now, I've heard some people say, oh, this is great. You know, this means that if if we can't convert non-Christians, if we can't uh, successfully evangelize non-Christians, then we'll just outbreed them and we'll transform society that way. And maybe you've heard the saying 
the future belongs to the fertile. That's a saying, and I think there's a lot of truth in that. The future belongs to the fertile. If you're going to win the future, you've got to show up for the future, and the people who will show up are the people who have kids. They're the ones who will pass on a legacy that will extend into the future. That is all true, but there's one big caveat we have to make here. It is not enough for Christians to have children. We must disciple them as Christians, and if we do not, the world will disciple them into secularism, and then we will end up having children who go to play for the other team, as it were. And so it's not enough to have children. We have to pass the baton of faith on to the next generation. That is how you change the world. That is how you disciple a nation. That is how you build Christendom, a God-glorifying civilization. When you have children and you pass the faith on to them and the next generation does the same and it becomes like links in a chain. There's a kind of covenant succession from one generation to the next. But if that link, if those links get broken, it's not going to happen. You have to disciple your own children in the faith. The Christian civilization can grow out of the soil of godly families, but they have to be godly families with godly children. You need a godly culture in your own home before we can have a godly culture in the world around us. And that means in your home there has to be godly discipline and godly teaching to make that happen. Then, and only then, can your children be arrows in your hand as you go to war the way Psalm 127 describes it. That's how Psalm 127 describes our children. Arrows in the quiver, arrows in the hand of a warrior as he goes to fight his battle at the city gate. And we need to understand there is indeed a war going on. And our children will fight in that war on one side or the other. After the fall of man into sin... Scripture draws a line between, between two kinds of children who will be brought into the world. This is all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Two kinds of children who will be brought into the world. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now all children born into this world, except Jesus who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, obviously. All children born into this world are sinners. But scripture is very clear. Children born to believers are not only sinners, they are also saints. They are holy ones because they belong to God in a special way. He claims them and makes them his own. We often refer to them as covenant children. That's how we talk about our children. They are covenant children. Why do we speak this way? Because God's covenant promises include our children. God's covenant promises claim the next generation. Our children are God's children, not by nature, but by grace. God said to Abraham in Genesis 17, I will be a God to you and to your children. And this promise is reiterated time and time again all throughout the rest of Scripture. God never makes a covenant with his people that does not include the next generation. Some examples of this, Psalm 102. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Deuteronomy 7, he is the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love to those who love and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Malachi 2.15 asks, what was God seeking in uniting a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage? Malachi 2.15 answers, he seeks godly offspring. God is seeking holy offspring, godly offspring through our marriages. Psalm 100, verse 5, his steadfast love endures forever, his faithfulness to all generations. 
Isaiah 65, they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. In Psalm 22, David describes God's covenant faithfulness to him even in his infancy when he says, you made me to trust in you even as a nursing infant. You were my God from the womb. That, those are the words of a covenant child, of one who grew up in the covenant. Psalm 103, his righteousness is to his children's children. Isaiah 59, my spirit is upon you and I put my words in your mouth and in your children's mouth. So the Spirit of God and the Word of God is in our mouths. It's being put in our children's mouths as well. Of course, you can think of John the Baptist as an example of the fulfillment of this, as he was filled with the Spirit of God even in the womb. That's a fulfillment of that promise in Isaiah 59, that our children will have God's Word and God's Spirit. In Luke 1.50, Mary sings, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, the first sermon after the Holy Spirit's been poured out, Peter affirms the covenant still includes generations. He says the promise is for you and for your children. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says your children are holy. Now it is true, our children can rebel. Our children make their own decisions. They can choose to reject the faith. They can fall away. They can apostatize. That is true. But these promises mean that Christian parents can expect their training to bear fruit in the lives of their children. When you seek to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, in the teaching and discipline of the Lord, you're going with the grain of the covenant. And God promises to be with you as a Christian parent in that, that the faith can be inculcated and nurtured and can grow in the lives of your children. Now all of this helps us to understand what Jesus means in Matthew 19 when he says, of the children brought to him, of such is the kingdom of heaven. Or in a different translation, Jesus says, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that these children being brought to him are members of his kingdom. They're citizens in his kingdom. Now, the, the children being brought to Jesus are not just any children. Obviously, these are the children of believers. In fact, these are the children of people who recognize Jesus as the Messiah, as the King. And that's why they want his blessing on their children. They know these promises of Scripture that when Messiah comes, he'll bless the children too. His blessing is for them as well. And these parents want that blessing for their children. Jesus declares the children are members of his kingdom, which means they live under the blessings and promises and grace of his kingly rule. They belong to the kingdom, and the kingdom belongs to them because they are united to King Jesus. Jesus lays his hands on them, showing they have a relationship with Jesus. They are united to him. He lays his hands on them to bless them. He rebukes his disciples who try to keep the children away. He prays for these children, and this is what you need to know. This is what you need to know today. These very same gifts and blessings of Jesus given to the children in the gospel account, those very same gifts and blessings of Jesus are given to the children who are gathered here with us today. Do you hear that, children? That Jesus is blessing you? Right now, right here, as you are gathered with his church, as you are in the presence of Jesus, 
with your parents, with the rest of us. Jesus is blessing you. It's like he's laying his hands on you and praying over you. And he's declaring of you, to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus says you are part of his kingdom. You belong to him. And kids, you need to know that's your safety, that's your security, that's your identity. It's found in having the blessing of Jesus. I want to spend the last few minutes of this sermon talking about how your parents, how all of you here as parents, can bring your children to Jesus continually. Even though Jesus is not with us physically, even though he is not physically present, he is present with us. And we can bring our children to Jesus continually to be blessed in these ways. Bringing your kids to Jesus begins with bringing them to church. That is Christian Parenting 101. Bringing your children to Jesus begins with bringing them to church. I think that includes baptizing them, as we witnessed a, a baptism this morning. I believe that includes communing them at the Lord's table from the earliest of days. But I've argued for that at other times, so I'm not going to repeat all of that this morning. I'll pass over that here. I'll just say that children being present with us in worship, that is their baptismal right. Children coming to the Lord's table with us, that is their baptismal right. They have been baptized into the body of Christ. They should eat the body of Christ. I think that's clear. But I also have to say this, and this is something that obviously if you're a parent with little ones, you know this already, but I want to talk about it for a few minutes. Bringing your children to church means training your children in worship. And that is undoubtedly hard work. You know, there are a lot of churches that uh, give parents a free pass, free babysitting on Sunday morning. They create a children's church, as they call it, so parents don't have to do that work of training their children in worship. I think that is a mistake. In fact, I want to say to you this. We don't need children's church because all church is children's church. Just like all baptism is really infant baptism and all communion is really pedo-communion because we, always, we all come into the kingdom as little children, all church is children's church. We enter the kingdom as children. There's no other way. In fact, in the immediately preceding chapter in Matthew 18, Jesus said, unless you become like, it, like this little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say children have to become like grown-ups enter the kingdom of heaven. He says we have to become like children. He makes little children model kingdom members. All church is children's church. Again and again, it's so interesting to me, again and again in scripture, when God's people gather for worship and it describes who is present, it specifically mentions the children. We are told again and again in scripture, when God's people gather for worship, we're told again and again, the children are there. So in Deuteronomy chapter 31, Moses says, when the law is read, so when the people gather for the reading of scripture and to hear it explained, he says, gather the people together, men, women, and children, that they may hear, learn, and fear the Lord your God. You've got the same in Ezra chapter 10, the people, including children, are to gather to hear scripture read and preached. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, again, it's the same thing. It says they stood before the Lord with their little ones. In Joel chapter 2, which Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2 in his sermon, Joel chapter 2 says, Gather the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. 
In fact, I find this really interesting. Children are even addressed personally and specifically as a subgroup within the church in passages like Ephesians 6 that we read this morning. Paul will talk about different groups within the church and he'll address them. He'll address these different groups within the church and children are one of those groups he addresses. Paul will speak directly to the children in a letter that would be read to the church as a whole in a worship service. So obviously Paul is assuming that children will be in the service and he treats them as church members and he tells them to obey their parents in the Lord. Which means he's speaking to them as Christians with Christian privileges and Christian duties. They're in the Lord, so their obedience to their parents is in the Lord. I could keep going and going with examples like this. One more. In Acts chapter 21, when Paul was departing from Tyre after ministering there, uh, it says all the men with their wives and children accompanied them, so Paul in the circle of apostles and, and, and others he was with, until they were outside the city to say farewell to the Apostle Paul. So the men and their wives and the children traveled out to the edge of the city to say their farewells to the Apostle Paul. Again and again and again we see this, children included in the life and ministry of the church. And so I can tell you, if you are wrangling with your kids in worship each Sunday to train them to worship, God is pleased with that. And that is part of how he is at work transforming you and transforming your children. He's working in you in that process if you're a parent, and he's working through you in the lives of your children. Parents, one of the best ways you can train your children for worship is to do family worship at home. I hope you do this where every day you'll read the Bible, you'll pray, maybe sing a hymn. Do it every day. Keep it simple, but make it a habit. Make worship at home a habit, and that will help your kids learn how to sit still and pay attention and participate during worship. Now, there will always be some detractors, some like the disciples who see children as a distraction, who will see children as a distraction from worship. But this is what I want you to understand. Training children to worship is itself an act of worship. Somebody may say, well, they're a distraction from the liturgy. No! Training children to worship is part of the liturgy. If you have little kids, that is part of your weekly liturgy, is doing that difficult and tiring work of training your children to worship. That is part of the liturgy for you. It's difficult, I, I know that, but do not grow weary in doing what is right. It will bear fruit. You are discipling children, you are discipling your children, which is your job. I mean, everyone knows children are a work in progress. Everybody knows children are a work in progress. Be patient and gentle with your kids, but keep working with them, training them, prodding them to greater maturity and faithfulness. Remind your kids, I would say this is another thing, remind your kids continually of their role in public worship. And again, Scripture is very specific about this. Your children in the assembly, like they are right here with us this morning, your children in the assembly are warriors. They are weapons wielded against the enemy. Satan does not want your kids here. You know why? Psalm 8, David says, Out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established praise to silence the foe and the avenger. The presence of your children in church spells doom. 
for the enemies of Christ. The presence of your children in this service is a threat to Satan because when your children open their mouths in praise, Satan's mouth is shut. The foe and the avenger is silenced. See, in the war to build God's kingdom, children who join with us in worship are strategic weapons. Your children are kingdom ammunition. They are firepower for the kingdom of God. And in taking down Satan, in overcoming the, the gates of hell, our children have a key role to play in this. Parents, make sure your kids know this. Remind them continually. Say, kids, remember, your job in worship is to silence the foe and the avenger. Your praise shuts Satan's mouth. They are warriors. Training your children to worship is training them in spiritual warfare. Liturgy is foundational and formational in our lives. Liturgy is habit-forming and character-shaping. It just gets woven into the fabric of who we are. Much of our liturgy stays the same every week. And this is really part of the genius of the church's liturgy. Parents, use that repetition in the service to your advantage. Before your kids are even old enough to read, they can know a lot of the liturgy by heart because it stays the same week after week after week. Children love repetition. Liturgy goes with that grain. Use it to your advantage. Teach your children the patterns of worship, the set prayers we use, the responses, the service music, all of that, the postures. Your kids at a very early age, yes, even before they can read, can learn the patterns and the postures and the prayers of the liturgy. A couple final thoughts here. Matthew 19 is one of those places where Jesus blesses children. Now, there are a lot of places where Jesus ministers to children and blesses children in some kind of way where he heals children. We see Jesus performing exorcisms on children. We see him resurrecting dead children. We see him healing sick children. But I want you to note this, parents. In every single case... The parents are present with the children when Jesus ministers to them. It is as if the parents are the atmosphere or the environment within which Jesus blesses children. And that's one reason why we want your children with you in a service like this. Because you see that when Jesus blesses the children, they are with their parents. And then there's this. It's not just that the church should be child-welcoming and child-friendly because Jesus was child-welcoming and child-friendly. That's true. But let me go one step further. It's that in welcoming these children, we welcome Jesus himself. When we welcome little bright birch into our church family this morning, there's a very real sense in which we are welcoming Jesus himself. Jesus said in Matthew 18, whoever receives a little child in my name receives me. We received Bright Birch into our church family this morning in the name of Jesus. And in receiving Bright Birch, we received Jesus himself. Little covenant children are representatives of Jesus. In welcoming them, we welcome him. It's as if they are apostles of Jesus in some way because Jesus uses the same language of the apostles he sent out. When you welcome a little child, when you receive a little child in Jesus' name, you receive and welcome Jesus himself. 
And how could it be otherwise when Jesus came to us as a baby? See, the word made flesh is really the word made an infant. The word made a baby. God came among us as an infant. And yet, yes, a toddler, and then a teenager, and finally a full-grown man. But the word made flesh came among us first as a baby. God's eternal word spoke to us first as a squirmy, wriggling infant. He came to us in the humility of a child. And he still does. And you know what? We must come to him as little children as well. Our salvation hinges on this. Our salvation hinges on us humbling ourselves and becoming like little children, confessing our utter dependence upon Jesus for everything. All church is children's church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.